0: This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking books on
1: News Talk 106 to 108.
2: You're very welcome back to Talking Books on Newstalk 106-108 with me, Susan Cahill. If you want to get in contact with the show, why don't you drop me an email at talkingbooks.newstalk.ie. Or if you've missed any of our programmes, don't worry, they're all podcasted on the Newstalk website. So check out our programme page, www.newstalk.ie forward slash talkingbooks. Now, on to a bit of blood sucking fiction. Why? Well, because in Dublin next weekend things are going to go all strange, creepy, and supernatural, as the city celebrates Bram Stoker and his epic novel Dracula. Well, earlier in the week, I call up with Caroline McCall, whose new erotic fiction book, The Pleasures of Autumn, is being launched on
1: the bank holiday weekend. We started out by discussing Bram Stoker. The Bram Stoker Festival is on in Dublin on the weekend of the 26th to the 28th of October, and it's promising a whole load of different events on for families and for people interested in writing and culture everything from a fire garden for Dracula to talks about the book events on in the cathedral in other words there's lots of stuff to go to for all of the family
2: and obviously there's lots of different broad events I know there's you know some outdoor stuff there's music there's theatre there's readings there's also film like it's an amazing a range of different Dracula themed events but do you think you have to be interested in kind of horror fiction to go to something like this?
1: No, not at all. I think it's aimed at being a fun festival for the whole family and hopefully it will bring the tourists out as well.
2: Now, can we talk a little bit about Bram Stoker for those who don't know much about Bram Stoker? Bram
1: Stoker, actually, it's quite strange because Bram Stoker was a court clerk and one of his first books he wrote in 1879 was actually a manual for court clerks for the Petty Sessions. And my first day when I was working as a criminal court registrar, it was actually on the bookshelves. So it was very strange to see that. He eventually became theatre manager over in England. He had... A good writing career with regard to Dracula. It was popular. He didn't make a lot of money from it unfortunately and it wasn't until after his death and the story was taken up by the emerging uh, motion picture industry that Dracula really took off.
2: And where did Bram Stoker get his interest in blood-sucking vampires? Like it was quite novel for the time (laughs) you know it was quite different. I wouldn't like,
1: it was to think it was when he was working in a court. <laughs> um, actually, I think he, well, I suppose he would have been researching for quite a while. It wasn't something that he dreamt of. Apparently, he worked for about seven years looking at the culture of Eastern European countries and myths and legends there. And so Dracula wasn't something that wasn't an overnight thing. It was something that he thought about carefully. And the other thing that would have influenced Dracula at the time would have been end of empire. Victoria had been on the throne for almost 60 years. They knew she was going to go. This was going to mark a huge big change in culture. And there was also the emergence, the early emergence of the suffragette movement. And that's something that scholars are still looking at as to Dracula's, I suppose, the way they were women were portrayed in Dracula. And was Stoker's reaction to the emergence of the suffragette movement.
2: And how women are betrayed in Dracula is so interesting. From the brides of Dracula to Mina and Lucy and all the unusual happenings around them and all their sacrifices they're willing to make for men. It's really interesting.
1: The women are quite different. They are Victorian women. Lucy is perceived maybe as slightly more, I suppose perhaps Stoker describes her as voluptuous. She is slightly flirtatious in one single day. In the book, she gets proposes marriage from three different suitors. So you can can see her as beautiful, light, fluffy, you know, the perfect victim, the perfect TSTL. Too silly to live.
2: And clearly very sexy.
1: And clearly very, very sexy. So she deserved to
2: die, basically. And she was willing to sacrifice Herself, though.
1: I think she was. I think uh, in the book, certainly you get the impression that Lucy knew that something was going on, that there was some sort of fate. There's a sadness, I think, a little bit of sadness, despite the fluffiness, that something was going to happen to her. Whereas Mina is a different character altogether. Uh, even though in the book, Mina is disparaging of what she calls the new woman. She's actually a new woman herself. She's learning secretarial duty. She's learning stuff so that she can actually help her husband with his business. Um, Jonathan has just recently qualified as a solicitor and she gives the impression of someone who is actually will work alongside her man as a partner which is not very Victorian.
2: And I'm just going to read for listeners a, a, just a little extract from yeah. Dracula. It's a very interesting window into women in Victorian times and what they felt their role was and how they felt they should serve their men. So anyway here it goes. At the end of Dracula Mina Harker implores her husband to kill her and it's, it's really extraordinary. This is what she says. Think dear. That there have been times when brave men have killed their wives and womankind to keep them from falling into enemy hands. It is men's duty to those they love in such times of sore trial. She wants her husband to kill her and she thinks it's a man's role to give her her salvation.
1: Not really Victorian, if you think about it. An attitude like that is actually medieval. In other words, protect the lady, protect the lady's Mm -hmm. honour at all costs. And I suppose it contrasts with her wanting to work with him initially in the book as a partner and then to be suddenly something which is sacrificed to preserve his honour rather than hers. And
2: there's so many mentions of voluptuous women and, you know, the power of a woman's sexuality and that how, you know, they can tempt men into all sorts of things. Can you tell me a little bit about Victorian sexuality?
1: In uh, Victorian times, a woman only had two paths. She could either be wife and mother, which was very respectable and that was the decent way to go. Otherwise, she was a whore. And that's basically it. There was no in-between.
2: And this obsession with purity and goodness in women littered all over Dracula.
1: Absolutely. Um, anyone who basically steps outside the norm, even Lucy, who is innocent in her own way, is described as voluptuous because she's slightly flighty. And what about the brides of Dracula? They were different kettle of fish altogether because they're actually in charge of their own destiny. They are, I suppose, sexually, they're out there. They're not afraid to take what they want. And that would have been um, to a Victorian man in some ways, especially to Jonathan when he's attacked by them. It meant his submission and submission by a man to a woman at that time was absolutely unthinkable. And one of the things
2: that's so innovative about Dracula is in relation to the story, like we've brilliant motifs on religion and brilliant iconic images of crosses and so on. But The idea of interracial sex or the foreigner, because Dracula is on the outside, he's on the fringes. So how do you think Bram Stoker developed this? And was he way before his time?
1: Um, I think to a certain extent he was reflecting colonialism and Britain had gone out there and colonised countries all over the world. But the thing about colonies is, is that you make people your citizens and then they have a right to basically come to your country. So suddenly they were being faced, I think, at the beginning of the century with, well, these were all... British citizens and they were coming here and I think oh my god they were saying what have we done it was maybe an afterthought of that it was okay when we were out there but suddenly not when they were all coming back in here
2: And how relevant a book do you think Bram Stoker's Dracula is in the 21st century like obviously we've Dublin City Council putting on a tremendous festival next weekend on the October Bank Holiday Weekend and there's so many extraordinary different events going on wonderfully curious and creative but how relevant is he for audiences now? Well
1: I think certainly scholars are really only looking at Dracula in the latter half of the last century I think when it came out first it was viewed as it was a great read but it really was just you know a bit, a bit of a gothic romance you know it wasn't taken seriously but when people actually thought about the themes and that involved in it they realised that there was it was a multi-layered work it is a classic it did inspire a whole I suppose century of vampire stories and all the other stories to do with monsters and that and it did have a huge impact on romantic fiction. The stranger who arrives, the exotic stranger who arrives. Just think of all the books that were written by, you know, in the last century, Milton Boone even, with people falling in love with people from other cultures. So certainly Dracula was the start of that.
2: Now Caroline, can we talk a little bit about the pleasures of autumn and your interest in erotic romance? What is erotic romance?
1: Uh, Erotic romance, I suppose, would be romantic fiction with heat. Heat is the best way of describing the sexual elements that would appear in it. Um, it's certainly a growth industry. It hasn't just evolved because of the Fifty Shades phenomenon. It has been something which has been growing certainly for the last dozen years. I was published first by an American company called Elora's Cave. They started off in 2000 and they published 39 books the first month. Now they're selling 190,000 books plus a month and they are just one small publisher. So it's a real growth area.
2: And whose point is it? Mainly women, presumably. Uh,
1: Mainly women and one factor which has helped enormously is the advent of the e-reader or the Kindle. Because now you can read whatever you want to. You can read on the train and you don't have a racy cover with a half-naked man on the front of it.
2: And how sexy do things get? Uh,
1: They do. There are levels. Um, Certainly um, in Elora's Cave, for instance, they will do everything from blush, which is nothing happens, up to taboo, which could be anything kinky, menage, you name it. It's practically orientated and the different genres, they're designed to appeal to whatever the reader wants. So if a reader is interested particularly in cowboys or they're interested in sci-fi or historicals, yes there is, um, I suppose, erotic romance for them.
2: And why do you think erotic romance now has become so popular?
1: I think it was always popular. I think it was just that mainstream publishers didn't actually realise that there was this big market out there. Now they've jumped on the bandwagon to a certain extent. It is a trend though I don't think the trend will vanish I think it will simply morph into other areas.
2: But when I'm at any book clubs or I'm chatting with friends about you know what I'm reading at the moment I haven't heard anyone admit to the fact that they're reading uh, erotic fiction. It's a bit like a vibrator really isn't
1: it? Maybe it is but I think it's, it certainly is a private pleasure, I think. And also there is a, there has always been a certain snobbery in relation to what's viewed as women's books. I mean, women buy certainly most of the books that are sold in America in about 2010 they did a survey and they realised that at least 62 million Americans had bought romantic fiction over the previous year and romantic fiction readers are avid readers and they're loyal but the genre itself is actually dismissed because it's not viewed as being serious fiction it has happy ever after
2: And that was Caroline McCall Now I've a real treat for you Yesterday was Reader's Day at the Redline Books Festival and it was great fun I have to say Dermot Bulger was great crack. Deirdre Purcell was insightful as ever. And the wonderful Colum Tobin gave a remarkable reading from his new book, The Testament of Mary. Well, lucky for me, Colm gave me some time after his reading. We talked about the role of faith and prayer.
0: In order to have faith, you have to have doubt. And also, you know, there's a beautiful phrase by T.S. Eliot. It's in The Four Quartets where he talks about a place where prayer has been valid. And in a way, Ireland is a place where prayer has been valid. I mean, so many, of the older, so, so many prayers have been said in Ireland and so much of that has mattered to people. So I think if you're treading on that, you tread softly or you tread seriously. And you ask the reader to come with you, um, the reader presuming that you're serious about this. But it's not a devotional book. But at the same time, it's not a book that mocks anybody. So it's, it's, it's that funny space... Where maybe belief hasn't fully come into place yet, and um I just wanted to offer a new perspective from a choosing voice
2: and what were the questions that you asked yourself when you were writing the book? because it's very intense and it's it's very deep, so you must have had lots of nights up searching thinking wondering how you grew up and and religion and the the role religion played in your life and certainly in your childhood
0: i I didn't ask myself any questions the main thing was to work what happens then is that an image comes to you and you play with it you say will that work here and will that work here and you start writing and the more you write the more fluency you get but if you stop and ask yourself anything or if you even question anything what you're doing can dissolve very easily I think you have to have it. oh, it's a funny process, quite a lot of confidence, because it, you could halfway through think it's not working and just abandon it. But you have to feel, well, I'm going, I am going. need to finish this. And then the more you work, the more strange images come. And yes, you're right, some of those images are from childhood. Some of those images are from the iconography that we're so used to in the, for example, in, in Marian devotion. But others are trying to humanize that, trying to bring that away from the sacred, not necessarily into the profane, but into the daily into the ordinary and into the question I suppose if you, if there is a question asked is what must it have been like for an ordinary woman to have gone through this experience what would she have said these years later and try and hold that voice and wield that voice
2: do you pray Colin? no you don't pray at all
0: no but it's an but extraordinary I, I what
2: you've written is it an extraordinary reflection So there must be some sense of spirit
0: in your life. Well, I listen to music, and I listen to Bach, I listen to the cantatas, I listen to a lot of religious music, and I read a lot of poetry. So that really, if you talk about the language of prayer, um, it's very close sometimes to the cadence of song, and it's very close to poetry. So that that idea of paying attention to the world with language and and with voice, I suppose is one thing prayer does. But um, I take a great interest in religious music.
2: There's a searching there of some sort.
0: I don't know if searching is the word. Searching is one of those new words, isn't it?
2: Do you intellectualize then prayer in that sense?
0: No, I suppose um, what I'm talking about is trying to find a cadence for this voice that is not merely ordinary. You know, not someone sweeping the floor or thinking ordinary thoughts, but is heightened. And I suppose the language of it is heightened in the same way as the language of prayer is heightened. But it is very much a secular novel in that really she's worried about her shoe or things of the world to preoccupy her rather than heavenly things. And so to that extent, it's a secular space, this novel.
2: Can we talk a little bit about the mundane things in life? But is there a space for ordinary, for the ordinary in your life and for the kind of the very banal, the very kind of the boring, the junky stuff?
0: Um, I suppose every person in Ireland really has to make a decision or often your body makes it for you about, for example, your relationship to the pub or drinking or stuff. I suppose at a certain point I just gave all that up. But I I don't have that sort of life, really. I sort of work hard and I'm always thinking about work. I don't have any great... I'm I'm interested in tennis, but I don't have any great interest in sport. (laughs) So all of those things that really could, you know, people get so much pleasure from. I often walk up the street and watch people, you know, having pints after work on a Friday or something. and think, God, I'm going to work. uh, Does that frustrate you? No, no it's fine No, it's just fine, it it suits me fine I like it.
2: Colm I imagine there's some days that you're very inspired and whether it's nature or music and there's other days that it's just a blank page how do you navigate both and how do you create that balance?
0: Um, I think what happens is that you wait sometimes until an idea becomes rhythm and you work with that, in other words that you have something in your head but it's not ready yet and eventually it becomes rhythm and 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 you get a few sentences. What you need to do then is work. And I think that you need to work every day. I think you need to feel, look, I've just got to keep going with this. So it's always easy to say, I won't do it today, I'll do it tomorrow. And I don't think you can do that. Maybe you can do it sometimes, but not very often.
2: Now, Colin, to finish off, you're going to read from the Testament of Mary.
0: I'm just going to read from the opening page of the Testament of Mary. They appear more often now, both of them. And on every visit, they seem more impatient with me and with the world. There's something hungry and rough in them, a brutality boiling in their blood which I have seen before and can smell as an animal that is hunted can smell. But I'm not being hunted now, not anymore. I'm being cared for and questioned softly and watched. They think I do not know the elaborate nature of their desires, but nothing escapes me now except sleep. Sleep escapes me. Maybe I'm too old to sleep, but there's nothing further to be gained from sleep. Maybe I do not need to dream or need to rest. Maybe my eyes know that soon they will be closed forever. I will stay awake if I have to. I will come down this passageway as the dawn breaks, as the dawn insinuates its rays of light into this room. I have my own reasons to watch and wait. Before the final rest comes this long awakening, and it is enough for me to know that it will end.
2: And what you heard there was the very haunting Max Ritter, ending this week's interview with Colum Tobin. Well, that's it for Talking Books for me this morning. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Now, for all those interested in historical fiction, next week I have a brilliant book for you. It's Joe Joyce's Echo Land. It's set during the emergency in World War II and it's a gripping read. You're going to absolutely love it. So all that's left for me to do is thank the lovely Alan Regan on Sound. We've been talking books. Why don't you get out of your bed? Enjoy a nice hot breakfast. Call a friend. And have a really, really great day.
1: Talking books on News Talk
0: 106 to 108. For listening to this News Talk one hundred and six to one hundred and eight podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.